1: Pythagoras is one of the most mysterious and fascinating figures of the ancient world, with many legends and ideas attributed to him. In our previous episode on this Greek thinker, we mentioned the Pythagorean idea of the music of the spheres, a central part of the mathematical worldview associated with this group that had serious implications for cosmology, ideas of harmony, and perhaps most importantly, music theory. Today we're going to talk about this incredibly interesting philosophical theory, one that has been adopted by different thinkers across history, and which, in many ways, many aspects of which are still relevant and true today. In the history of Western philosophy, Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans are seen as a key moment. He has sometimes been referred to as the first philosopher, a statement that can certainly be questioned, and many other ancient philosophers such as Plato trace their lineage back to Pythagoras as an early important proponent of a wisdom tradition that included many other figures like Hermes and even Moses. But as we saw in the last episode, we aren't even really sure if he existed as a historical person, and if he did, we can't say much with certainty about his life or his supposed teachings due to the fact that all our sources are from hundreds of years after he lived. Assuming he lived, scholars tend to agree that he seems to have been a charismatic sage figure who gathered a group of followers in the city of Croton around the 5th century BC and which led a certain Pythagorean way of life concerned with asceticism, knowledge of the immortal soul and certain rules of ritual conduct, including a vegetarian diet. But as the centuries went by, Pythagoras and his followers became associated not only with this particular Pythagorean way of life, but also with certain philosophical ideas surrounding numbers and mathematics. Pythagoras is attributed with holding a worldview where everything is essentially made up of numbers and geometry, a universe made up of perfect mathematical relationships and sacred recurring patterns. Reality was math and numbers, in other words. Problem is, there's no real evidence that Pythagoras at all taught or held these kinds of ideas. With that said, the later Pythagoreans probably held these ideas for a reason, and so it isn't completely unthinkable that some of these themes can be traced back to the man himself. And even the earliest Pythagorean thinkers, of whom we have direct accounts or fragments, such as Philolaus and Archytas, seem to have put a major emphasis precisely on mathematics and how the relationship between numbers is a significant aspect of the cosmos. And whatever is the case with Pythagoras himself, we can be sure that the Pythagoreans as a school, as much as they can be called an actual school, uh, were definitely characterized by these kinds of ideas. And we can see how this thinking is incredibly influential on later thinkers like Plato and especially the later Neoplatonists who were very much concerned with concepts like the one as a core aspect of reality. Now, how much of this actually comes from Pythagoreanism or was rather projected onto Pythagoras by people like Plato is a discussion for another time. But among the most famous and significant aspects of the Pythagorean mathematical universe was the idea often called the music of the spheres. This is a theory that implements many different fields, mathematics and geometry, astronomy and music, and proposes a kind of unified vision of reality. To the Pythagoreans, as we have said, all of the universe is governed by mathematical patterns and ratios. In many ways, this is still considered true today, as we can find math basically everywhere. Mathematics is a language we use that seems to correspond to some of the deepest truths about how reality works, and the things we observe in the world often follow very predictable patterns and rules. Just think of the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio, for example, which we can find in so many aspects of nature in different ways, all following the same mathematical pattern. To the Pythagoreans, the universe is harmonious, perfectly so in fact. Everything follows the perfect rules of mathematics and its harmony. And ideas of harmony are of course directly related to music, which arguably is concerned with harmony in different ways. Thus, to these thinkers, the universe was musical, because mathematics and music are intimately connected, being ruled by the same ratios and structures. There is a famous story often told, where Pythagoras is walking along in the marketplace and listens to the sounds of hammers striking anvils. He suddenly has a realization that a hammer that is precisely twice as big as another will produce a sound that is harmonious or beautiful when played alongside the other. He had discovered the octave. This story obviously probably isn't true, but it does illustrate the key point. A discovery attributed to Pythagoras that seems to prove that music is a direct reflection of mathematical harmony. And even though this probably wasn't Pythagoras' discovery, it's actually true. The octave, as well as other notes in a scale, follow a set of patterns of intervals that are mathematically sound. Any note, or any sound really, is based on a frequency, and frequencies are represented by the unit called hertz. And say we have any given note, like an A note at 440 hertz, for example. If we double that number to get to 880 hertz, we have a perfect octave, two notes which sound really good together. Furthermore, if we add the original frequency three times, we get to 1320 hertz, which is what is known as a perfect fifth. Another one of the most common and quote-unquote pleasing intervals in music. Without boring you too much with music theory, we can see that the Pythagoreans were totally right. All the music we listen to is, at least to some degree, governed by these perfect mathematical ratios and intervals that make notes sound good or harmonious together. So the reason certain notes sound good together to us, like the tonic and the perfect fifth, which is like a universal interval in all music, is not just because someone at some point said, this sounds good, and then everyone just followed. It actually is based on on how mathematics works and how nature works. There is something within the intervals and ratios of these notes that are mathematically sound, and probably for that reason, they sound good together to our ears. It's really fascinating stuff. Mathematical harmony manifests as musical harmony, and to the Pythagoreans, we think notes sound good together precisely because they reflect the fundamental building blocks and patterns of the universe itself. This becomes even more profound when we consider what is known as the harmonic series. When we hear any note, not just on like a guitar, but any sound in nature, that note includes the bass note or frequency, which is called the fundamental, but also a bunch of overtones that we don't really hear, right? But they make that sound what it is. And these overtones, amazingly, follow the exact same pattern that we have just talked about. The first is always an octave, followed by a perfect fifth, another octave, a perfect fourth, a major third, and so on. It's pretty mind-blowing, actually, that these patterns are found in basically all sound. The sound of a singing bird follows the same mathematical rules as does you striking the string on a guitar. It seems like our old friend Pythagoras was onto something, right? He was, for sure, but it also gets a little more complicated. This is why I said that all music, in some sense, follows these rules. Because the Pythagoreans also tried to construct a 12-note octave scale based on these perfect ratios, in particular based on the perfect fifth, and it doesn't really work. Notes eventually start shifting around and acting strangely, resulting in a limited use for the theory. Turns out things weren't as perfect as Pythagoras hoped. The scale we use today in music, known as equal temperament, is based on dividing the perfect octave into 12 equally spaced intervals, which doesn't align exactly with the perfect Pythagorean mathematical ones, although they are still very close. Although dividing the octave into equally spaced intervals is kind of mathematically harmonious in its own way, but in a different way, you could say. So when you hear most music today, basically all music today, it doesn't actually follow these Pythagorean mathematical rules. If it had used those Pythagorean intervals and notes, it would actually sound wrong to us. And there is of course a lot to be said for the fact that the reason we think certain notes sound good together is also because of cultural conditioning and that we are used to certain things sounding this way because we've grown up and we have listened to music in this way all our lives. There is that aspect of it too. Despite these nuances, the basic features of the Pythagorean idea is still true. Musical harmony is ruled by these very precise mathematical rules, especially core intervals like the octave, perfect fifth and perfect fourth, and it's no coincidence that these intervals are probably the most recurring in music across the world. Regardless of all the other particular features, like quarter tones and such things, the octave and perfect fifth and also perfect fourth are basically universal, probably because it just makes sense on a mathematical and cosmic level, which we thus respond to on a personal level when we hear those notes together. Speaking of the cosmic level, this is where we get to the actual spheres of the music of the spheres. The ancients believed that the cosmos was essentially made up of concentric spheres. The earth, of course, was at the center of the universe, and then there were a number of spheres extending outwards, each with a planet that revolved around the center in perfect circles. At the furthest point was the sphere of the fixed stars. Now, because everything in the universe is governed by a mathematical harmony, so were of course the planets and spheres, since they also are a very important and foundational aspect of that universe. The movements of the planets in their spheres follow the ratios and rules that govern the rest of the cosmos. As a result of this, the planetary spheres made music. Their movements and following of these harmonic rules resulted in them emitting their own sounds, or in other words, their own music. This wasn't audible music, of course. We can't hear the music of the spheres, as Aristotle points out in his very critical account of this theory. Instead, it's a kind of higher form of music, the audible version we can hear only being a kind of relatively pale reflection. After all, according to this worldview, everything is music. Since music and mathematics are essentially the same thing, all of reality is musical since it is harmonious and ordered according to the same rules and patterns. When we hear music in the form of sounds, this is a manifestation of the fundamental principles of the cosmos itself, including the movements of the spheres and the music that they make. It's a powerful idea and one that influenced many thinkers across history even until today. Plato himself, in his arguably most influential dialogue, the Timaeus, describes the creation of the world according to mathematical and musical harmony. The demiurge, meaning craftsman in Greek, creates the world perfectly, according to the precise proportions of music. The spherical universe with its revolving planets all form a cosmic harmony that follows the intervals of a musical scale. In particular, it follows what is known as the Dorian mode, which Plato was particularly fond of. So the whole universe, as fashioned by the demiurge, is an elaborate musical composition in a way. And our ideal way of living as individuals and as a society is to be in tune with this musical harmony, which will result in peace and well-being. In fact, the performance and listening to actual audible music thus becomes an important aspect of this process on a human level, according to Plato. Later still, the 6th century Christian philosopher Boethius continued in the same manner, carrying the Pythagorean and Platonic ideas forward into the Middle Ages. In a work called On the Fundamentals of Music, De Institutione Musica, he presents a similar musical cosmology where everything is ruled by the principles of arithmetic and its harmony. In fact, in the work he classifies music into three categories. First is Musica Mundana. This is the music of the spheres, or music of the cosmos. This is the highest form of music produced by the harmonious movements of the spheres and of the cosmos in general, with its recurring mathematical or musical patterns. This is the kind of music that cannot be heard by the ears, but only understood. Then there is musica humana. This is music on the human level, in the sense of a harmony between the human body and soul, so a kind of spiritual harmony, you could say. And lastly, there is musica instrumentalis, and this is music as we know it, like music that we can hear and play using instruments or the voice. While these categories are listed as different in this sense by Boethius, they are of course unified in the fact that they follow the same rules and ratios. It's only different aspects of this more um, holistic, uh, complete, universal uh, music, right? Everything is music and music manifests itself in different ways. Uh, In one sense, in in the spheres and in the cosmos at large, which is this inaudible music, also in the soul, and of course also in the actual audible music that we play and sing and listen to. They are different manifestations of the same phenomenon – namely the musical or harmonious nature of the universe as a whole. Even as late as the 17th century, with figures like the famous astronomer Johannes Kepler, who is very significant for our current understanding of the solar system, we find similar ideas. He is of course perhaps most famous for suggesting that the planets move in elliptical orbits around the sun, but he was also interested in other aspects of philosophy. In his Harmoniques Mundi, the harmonics of the world, Kepler attempts to sketch a picture of the cosmos, in particular of astronomy, that conform to the geometry and rules of musical harmony. At this point, the Pythagorean scale had been abandoned in favor of a more reliable one, but the principle remains the same. The planets and other features of the natural world are akin to a kind of musical composition. Different parts of the world are like instruments in an orchestra playing beautiful harmonies together, or more particularly in this case, like a choir of different voices singing together. Kepler clearly takes influence from uh, the Pythagoreans, or at least as they were transmitted through people like Plato and Boethius, uh, but he also makes some significant innovations and and, and, and brings new aspects to this whole theory. Kepler wrote, quote, The heavenly motions are nothing but a continuous song for several voices, to be perceived by the intellect, not by the ear. A music which, through discordant tensions, through syncopations and cadences, as it were, progresses towards certain pre-designed six-voiced cadences, and thereby sets landmarks in the immeasurable flow of time. End quote. The different planets are presented by Kepler as different voices in a choir singing together, and he even relates certain planets to specific musical notes. It's a profound philosophical work in many ways. And in general, Kepler makes some important innovations to the general idea that he adapts from thinkers like Plato. For one thing, Kepler, of course, lived in a time when the geocentric model of the cosmos had been abandoned, instead, basing his version of the music of the spheres on a more correct heliocentric model where the sun is at the center. Furthermore, Kepler also implements polyphony into the system to extend the harmonic possibilities, something that wasn't present in the ancient authors. So as you can see, the basic ideas adopted by the early Pythagoreans have stuck around for quite a long time. It influenced not only other ancient figures like Plato, but much later figures in history too, all the way to people like Johannes Kepler in the 17th century in the modern world. Even today, there are many people who look to this theory as an attractive way to look at the world, and one which seems to align with modern mathematics. The contemporary principles of string theory as a way to explain the fundamental features of the universe often uses explicit musical language too, albeit in a very different way from the theories of the Pythagoreans. Of course, today we know that our friend Pythagoras, if he even had these ideas, was wrong about a lot of them. The view of the cosmos held by the ancients has been discarded today, and we know that our solar system and the rest of the universe looks a lot different from the planetary spheres imagined by ancient thinkers. So in this sense, the music of the spheres kind of falls apart in that particular sense. At the same time, though, we saw that modern thinkers like Kepler could still implement this theory and this way of looking at the world in spite of having a heliocentric model rather than the ancient way of looking at the world through these spheres. So it can be adopted and implemented in various ways, even though we don't adopt the particular cosmology of the ancients, right? Likewise, we know that when you try to create a 12-note octave scale using the perfect fifth, things aren't as perfect as Pythagoras hoped. He would probably have been pretty upset to know that things like irrational numbers indeed seem to be a thing, and our modern scale system forces us to break some of the rules that Pythagoreans would have preferred. But again, in terms of the basic notions of these ideas, they still accurately explain the world and music in many ways. There is indeed a strong connection and correspondence between musical intervals and mathematical ratios. The music we hear, be it a piece by Bach, the latest song from Harry Styles, or the beautiful calling of a bird, it all follows the same mathematical rules and patterns. The universe may not be perfectly harmonious at all times, as far as we can know through our mathematical language, but arguably it is most of the time. Everywhere around us are fundamental mathematical patterns that make up the very foundations of things, like the golden ratio or the perfectly symmetrical rules of a triangle, the rhythms of people walking, or the falling of raindrops. In this way, it's all music. And the amazing thing is that actual music, in its foundations, follow the exact same patterns and relationships. The harmonic series of any note which determines intervals like the octave and perfect fifth remains constants that remind us of the beauty and symmetry of the world around us. A musical universe where we all contribute to the rhythm and melody of the grandest symphony of them all. I'll see you next time.
2: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS.